Hello, and welcome to the new Art of the Cut podcast brought to you in partnership with Frame.io. My name is Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film and documentary editor. For more than seven years, over 300 interviews, I've been speaking to my colleagues in film, TV, and docs about the art and craft of editing. Today, we're speaking with Una Niganila, ACE and BFE, about her work on the critically acclaimed Kenneth Branagh film, Belfast. Una is a BAFTA-winning film editor who has cut TV including Three Girls, The Crown, and Les Miserables and films including Stan and Ollie, All is True, and Misbehavior. Una and I last chatted on Art of the Cut about editing The Crown, and hopefully we'll chat again when Branna's Death on the Nile comes out next year. If you're interested in reading this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to blog.frame.io, where there's a ton of great expert content for film professionals of all types. With this interview, it'll also allow you to see the clips that we talked about. And with this interview, it'll also allow you to see the clips that we talked about specifically. What a sensational movie. You know, I love the opening montage that you see modern day Belfast. Since the whole movie was really rooted in, you know, 60s Belfast, what was the point? What was the reason that he wanted to start the movie or you wanted to start the movie, either one of you? with modern day footage. And that was actually Ken. He had that written in his script. He wanted, I think, to, to look at Belfast. So this is really a love letter to Belfast. And when I first read the script, the fact that it was called Belfast and it was such a beautiful script that he wrote, I did wonder whether the name would survive because one can imagine if you're going to the movies, would you like to see a film called Belfast? Maybe it had connotations. And what I'm really proud of Ken for is keeping his the name Belfast because I think he's reclaimed that name and written a love poem to that city and championing the, that city. So one of the first things he wanted to do was look at that city as it is in 2021, but with fresh eyes. So he filmed it in a very beautiful way, I think, just trying to show the architecture, the, the light, the colour, the hill behind. And before principal photography himself and Harris, the DOP, they went to Belfast and on their phones they filmed shots Belfast, which he then gave to me. And Ken and I had about four or five days together uh, working to put, we were actually remote. I cut together the phone footage with exploring the Van Morrison music track, also a voiceover. We, we were exploring things prior to principal photography to work out how it could work and reframing the phone footage so that when he went to shoot it, he only had two days to shoot it, he could impart the information to the guys who were going to shoot it. It was a Belfast team because the risk was with COVID, you know, they may not be able to get back. So we needed to have a very good template. So I think that was his, his vision was to show Belfast as it is today in 2021 in a beautiful, new, fresh way, and then to be transported back in time. And it was always top and tail. Van Morrison and Colour. That was always the plan from script stage. One of the big action sequences is the opening riot. Did Ken talk to you about an intent for that scene? What did he want it to feel like? What was the purpose of it? Or did you just get the dailies and off you went? No, this film is actually, so it's Ken's passion project, but it became all of us who, who really respect Ken and admire him as a filmmaker and a poet. I, I do say he's like a master storyteller or a poet. And like Van Morrison is a poet, the two Belfast poets. But he, when, when he gave me the script to read originally in June, and we were making Death on the Nile at the time, 
it just chimed with me because my family are from, uh, my dad is from Northern Ireland, from Oma in County Tyrone, and my uncles and my grandparents, they were working class Catholics who lived through this time. And for me, he, Ken has captured the vernacular of the people, the intimacy of the neighbours, the great friendships between Protestants and Catholics, and the fact that you know, there was a, a love of a community, people living on those terraced houses. So I think so much of the script chimed with me that myself and Ken actually developed a shorthand. We have made three films, which I believe in two years, All Is True, Death on the Nile and Belfast. So it meant that when I was cutting, Ken didn't have to sort of talk too much to me because I, I got it. And we were working remotely. So he was shooting in London. I was editing in my studio in Dublin. And I just saw the rushes. I saw the way he had shot it, that beautiful first sweeping shot. And as we come down with the child and the joke about tribe. So I could follow it with the subjective point of view of the child in mind. And he shot that turning shot. You know, the shot circles around the boy in 60 frames per second. So I was able to put a time warp on that and you know, bring it from 24 frames to 48 to 60 back up to 48 maybe even to 36 so if you see it again it's not a continuous feel of a pan so that you really feel what the child is feeling and obviously sound design was crucial to me even from first day of principal photography because they shot in Surrey and I had to sort of build with my assistant editors a sound bed until the sound team came on board proper so using that sound bed of uh, Ken referred to it in his script as the child hears a buzzing of bees he doesn't quite know what it is and that was a good little note for me to think okay we can we have a bit of freedom in the sound here to do something a little bit more creative use of sound before that first explosion and then it was just me like a magpie finding every piece of shot from any b camera or a camera that we could get you know the guy with the chain or people smashing a window and another person running through and the explosion so you have to feel as if you were in the boy's shoes what he felt so I think the beauty of the way Ken and Harris have shot it that stillness and that that, that circular track to suddenly the visceral elliptical style of editing added an, a, a psychology and a subjective point of view to the opening sequence and then sound enriched that further so I did contact our sound team Simon Chase was very kind and although he wasn't officially starting yet he fed in some sound design effects to me like the chain or some ship horns or anything that I could use to enrich otherwise myself and my assistants we were using any sound that I had already on file so it was real um I think psychological style of editing or visceral style of editing to keep you identifying with how it felt like for for Ken because obviously that's a, a very real memory for him I really like the fact that actually we kept it without music because I think that's a vital element. That's what I was about to point out. There was no music under that. Yeah, we did have a version with music. So although our, our edit time was short, myself and Ken, where I think we're a good team is we can work swiftly together and we can interrogate footage. And, and although we were working remotely, we worked as if we were in the same room. I had an abbot with a drive in my house. He had an abbot with a drive in his house. My assistants had the same. So I could literally edit say Ken asked me to edit something, I could edit it. And if I saw something that I thought, oh, maybe this is a good idea. Normally, if the director's in the room with you, you could just sort of show them and say, hey, what do you think about this? But because Ken wasn't physically with me, I then did like an alternative one and two and sent him. And then my assistant could just land it into his bin, render it, and he could just press play and watch it, get on the phone to me. And that was brilliant because it meant that Ken was actually really hands-on as well and could watch these different versions and that was really fun, actually. That was a really great experience because it meant that both of us, we were sort of grafting and, and explore anything else that could happen. So we did have music on, but then we found 
take the music off, just feel it. We just had a brilliant team from everyone because they were all coming in with some good ideas of sort of saying it does work without music. And there's a confidence to it, actually, that really makes the audience lean in. If you have music on, it somehow softened the experience or maybe just made it too toe-tappy, whereas by just letting it be a barren explosion you just were with the child and it felt more authentic and real I think. Was there any score in the movie at all? No the only score is Van Morrison um, supplied two cues called instrumental one and instrumental two both of them were <laughs> roughly five minutes each and I was able to cut them in different moments in the film where we didn't want to use a Van Morrison track that might be lyric led. We just wanted a, a motif so it kept us tonally with Van Morrison but they were just two cues which were they just continued, you know, they just ended so I could segue from one to the other and we sprinkled them through. And whenever the um, Billy Clanton Jr. character came in, we used some motifs of sound design that sounded a bit like a drone or a bit musical, but they were actually sound design elements. They weren't technically a uh, music cue. So we had three little spots of that instrumental, but they were just two pieces of Van Morrison in script stage. Ken had Van Morrison's music top and tail. And he obviously wrote the joy piece, especially for this film based on the script. So I had that prior to even shoot beginning. Within the body of the film, originally we had some other, Ken had other sort of music ideas of the time, but then very quickly, we actually removed that and just went for a, a more sparse score, but using Van Morrison tracks that actually resonated on a sort of human level with Ken. Those were not written into the script as this cue is gonna go on the oh, scene. No, they came, they came organically, but very quickly actually, after the first cut when we watched it, I think Ken just felt from a memory point of view, Van's music and the lyrics that he had chimed with him and they, they sort of worked for him. So as we were shortening the film, the first cut was two hours 20 and we were shortening scenes and some scenes were falling to the ground. So we found that if we could take the best of any of the imagery that was now leaving the film, we could make those little montages. And with Van Morrison's music, those montages provided a, a vital element of pace because we have so many beautiful scenes that are shot in a tableau style with depth of field, but these little vignettes of time passage with Mar Van Morrison's music, they just added sort of a, a lyricism to the film that, that was right for Ken's memory. I love the pacing of the film. There's so many moments that, are, and, and part of that, of course, is phen phenomenal performances by even the young boy. Wasn't there an early scene that held on his face? It was talking about Catholicism, yes, yes, I think. Yes, yeah. And there's a whole conversation with other people talking. You don't cut to anyone. No, we don't cut to anyone. Yeah, we deliberately did that, actually, because Ken had devised a, a very simple style, which I think really works with a memory-based film of the wide shot and then a couple of close-ups. And then that particular scene, we could have cut around again, but it just felt more confident to just stay with the boy. We felt actually it was quite brave to just and bold to stay with him. When you have footage, you don't want to overcut because sometimes you get less than the sum of the parts if you overcut or you overuse a shot. And we felt that there was more boldness in just staying with the boy and setting our ground very firmly that this is the story of this child through whose eyes we will mostly see the film. Although we do have different moments where we switch the subjective point of view, but that was a really important one to just stay with him. Do you think the audience realizes the truth of a held moment where if it's edited, they don't? Why is that confident to stay on the boy? It forces the audience, I suppose, to watch it. We're, we're actually unconsciously saying to the audience, this is important, we want you to see this. If I were to cut back to the Ma Par, the brother Will, it might just become an ordinary scene. 
And actually, we want to say, no, this is, we want you to listen to what's been said here and remember this moment. And I think it took the ordinariness away. Whereas you can imagine if you cut to the other people, it just becomes a dialogue scene or a scene between the family. And the subtext was more to instate the child as our protagonist through whose eyes we would see and to really let the audience lean in. Also, Jude is so beautiful and he's so charming that you know, when you see that little face and he, and he listens, as an actor, what I think is extraordinary about him, because he was only nine or 10 when he acted in this, he, Ken basically said to him, listen to what is happening, listen to the words spoken from you know, your mom, pa. And we shot this all through COVID. So they were in a little bubble group, the family, with Kieran Hines and Judy Dench. And it meant that Jude, as a, a performer, when he sat down and the camera was on him, and you can imagine from his perspective, he's looking at a great big camera in front of him. But he kept focusing on Jamie or Katrina or Kieran or Judy, whoever was in the scene with him. And Ken could give him direction. And Jude was brilliant. He never lost a step. He lived in the moment. He listened to what was said as if it was his own grandparents or his own parents. And Ken was great, I think, in supporting him. Uh, there's scenes like that, uh, held scenes with the mom, too. She is such a powerhouse. And what was extraordinary about that scene as well, um, Matt Glenn was our VFX producer and he was our editor. So he was adding in, you know, the helicopters. He was adding in the backdrops because our schedule was so tight. Once Ken started shooting, we had to hit the ground running. So say he started shooting on Monday. I was editing that night, actually, so that we could show him the first assembly of the first week's assembly that Friday night he came from the set but he wrapped at seven came to Twickenham where I was and we watched everything from eight until midnight we went through everything of the first week to sort of make sure you know, did he need anything extra he was trying out holding a lot of scenes purely in the tableau with no coverage and very quickly we worked out no you know we'll need to get some close-ups on the boy or the pops so Ken was brilliant that he was actually organically moving while he was shooting he was watching reviewing perfecting what he was shooting. And we were able to have a collaboration and dialogue about that. Was there less footage and coverage to look at? Were you looking at less footage in dailies than you normally would? At times there was less coverage insofar as Ken may have had a very clear vision, like that scene when the kid is on the toilet outside and uh, Kieran Hines is polishing the saddle and, and Judy Dench is in the background. But he, he may have taken several takes we had a lot of takes, long takes to perfect that performance, because, again, it's an extraordinary achievement for a little child who hasn't really acted before. These long takes with a lot of dialogue and to make sure that everyone hits the ground running. And as Ken was shooting in week one, he probably had more tableau. But by week two, he was doing the tableau and he was also picking up a few you know, close ups. As an editor, my challenge really, I suppose, from a pace point of view was how to marry those tableau style scenes with keeping the film moving, with the sort of, you know, the wave of, of uh, a film that keeps an audience engaged. And we found that sometimes if we moved a scene, that added to the flow a bit better. If you had too many three or four tableau scenes in a row, there could be a risk that the film would plateau. So that's where I think Ken and I, we, we were a good team that we kept just forensically sort of looking at the wishes and thinking, could that scene move down or could we come out of that scene earlier? Could we come into that scene later? And how to keep the film alive and celebrate that beautiful tableau style of shooting that he was developing. And a very vital element, I think, in the film was how to keep the ordinariness. Um, I had asked Ken in August what his audio memories were from his childhood, so I could have them ready in anticipation of the shoot, because we shot in Surrey, but we needed to create a sound bed of Belfast from first day of principal photography. In editorial, I needed to do that, because sound 
and music for me are a rich character to add to the film. And Ken says, you know, the, the uh, ice cream van, the ship horns, the constant trains, the rag and bone man, the coal man, the milk. So he had, he had these very beautiful memories that it meant that we could just add in an ice cream van at a moment that just helped you again on an Im implicit level realize this is an ordinary city devastated by this extraordinary rise of violence. When you were adding those sounds like the, the ice cream van, did you feel, okay, I'm in this happy nostalgia scene, we'll do the ice cream van, or I'm in a scene with more danger, maybe we do a train horn. Yeah, or, or maybe you're in the scene of danger, actually, and you put the ice cream right. van. <laughs> it was more like the counterintuitive stuff of trying to just say, this is a city with children, you know, going to school daily and ice cream vans coming, despite the fact that the British army have arrived and are putting up, you know, barricades. And then the people in the streets, they're putting up their own barricades and this, this build on build of the tension. And at the same time, normality um, continuing. So when you see the little kid and he's looking at the little girl, you're getting her hairbrushed, but we also have the men being stopped and searched at the barricades. So you want to just explain that this this normalization of those barricades is something that actually was quite frightening to see. And it's something that unfortunately continued throughout the, the 30 years of the troubles. So I think Ken was very brave actually in the way he's told the story. And even beginning as he does with that riot with you know, the Protestant vigilantes smashing the windows to get the Catholics out, that's a very brave thing for him to do as a man who came from a Protestant background and that he's telling that story. And I think, um, yeah, I hope, I hope that that's, his, his bravery in, in trying to just tell the truth in as authentic way as possible is mirrored in, I think, our editing style, the psychology of our edits, as well as the sound design. And we had a great sound design team who joined us, you know, to just bring that level of sound to the film so you didn't miss the music. You could feel this is a film that actually is trying to be more truthful and more simple, actually, in its style so that the audience can feel the truth of it and maybe even recognize a clock ticking that you know, they had or something, something that resonates with an audience at home. Most of the film, as you could, people can probably tell from watching trailers, is black and white, but there are moments of color. Can you talk to us about the reason for those and the psychological purposes behind it? You know, I, I actually loved Ken's work before I even started working with him. And one of the films I loved that he did years ago when I was a student was Dead Again where he used the black and white for the past. So I think the black and white is a motif of his that he has used to represent the past. That when they went to the cinema, the cinema would be in color. And he was trying to obviously show the impact on a child, such as himself, that cinema was a, an escape and how vivid and real it felt in the midst of all the ordinariness of life. Everything was shot in color, by the way, and then put into black and white. So we had the opportunity to do it, but he always envisioned it black and white and the cinema and theater are color and the top and tail of the film are color. And knowing that this child is based on Ken Branagh, I love the fact that he sprinkled in, you know, the Thor comic book or his favorite football team. There's little elements of him sprinkled throughout the film for anyone who knows him. The thing I loved with the color was in the theater section, they're watching A Christmas Carol and in Dame Judi Dench's glasses, the color is in her glasses. Yeah, you know, that was really important because we actually thought Granny was also inspired by the theater. So in, in my background, my parents and my grandparents are amazing storytellers, oral storytellers. And I think the same is true for Ken's family. So I think it was really important that Granny was given that gift of the reflection in her glasses because she obviously loved the theater. 
And perhaps that's where Ken has also got his appreciation for theatre. So it's a nice little nod to Granny. Tell me a little bit about your collaboration with Ken. And you mentioned having to do this largely remotely. Were you using anything special, Zoom or? No, we were so old school. We were using just the fact that he had to drive. I had to drive. My assistants had to drive. We had three second assistants because people stayed with us for two months at a time, which is the nature of independent film. And the same thing with the first. We had one first, Carly Brown, who stayed for the duration. But Simon Davis and Matthew Tucker, they both did two months each just to help with the sheer volume of turnover for sound and preparation for grades and everything. So I think we, we did really well, because when you think about it, having people for two months at a time, that adds an extra challenge alongside the COVID because you have to get people up to speed. But we were blessed that we had brilliant people uh, to join us for those two months. So they are Carly Brown, who stayed with me for the duration. And then the second assistants are Lydia Mannering, uh, Quinn and Tamiri Kaldak. And then uh, Simon Davis and Matthew Tucker also helped two months each for all that turnover. So and that just sounds like it was just the phone? It was, it was just the phone, yeah. And even when we did the sound mix, um, we also did a few test audience screenings and I hosted one in Dublin. He had one in London. We had one in Belfast, which I had popped up to with Van Morrison. And then Ken sent the sound mix. So they were mixing on Monday and at lunchtime they would send me the files of what they had done so that I could watch it in a sound studio in Dublin because COVID didn't allow me to return to London. So we were able to talk through the sound mix and any sort of little points because editors, I think, are always quite strong in a mix. We can spot things that might be helpful to the director. I want to touch on that idea of the sound mix and the value of having you speak into it. The value, I think, of any editor in the sound mix is the fact that we have actually, before the sound team begin, we are already sort of building an edit throughout the assembly using sound and music as characters or tools for storytelling. So we can see things or know the intention of something on a subtext level that when we're in the sound mix with you, we might spot something that someone else might miss. So I think we're quite invaluable just on a very implicit level of just having another pair of ears. I think that's where my skill is. My skill is with sound and music. You know, there's a telephone conversation, for example, on a previous film. I had put their breath on the phone and in the mix when I was watching it, it didn't have the tension because the sound guys had cleaned up the breath on the phone and had removed it. And I was able to spot that and say to the director, oh, that scene has lost the tension because there used to be a breath on the phone. So you knew someone was on the phone. So there's little subtle things that I think that we can bring and we can spot. Great. Okay. So you're hired. (laughs) (laughs) I've gone to the sound mix on on many film before when it wasn't in the budget for me to be there. And I have gone for free because I do think it affects my editing. Yeah. And there was a few things like as well with some of the little uh, ADR lines. So if you ever see the film again, the child who's been dragged up the road and he's saying, daddy, don't you? He said, you give no more money to the street. That's actually recorded on my phone in my garden for my little son. And they, they put it in and that was really good to see that they had kept it because it had sort of an energy and vitality to it that actually just felt right. So that was good. So there's a few little things like that. Where's your voice in the film? I'm in the same area. I'm one of the voices that says, don't make this personal. And then Ken is in the film as well with a Northern voice as some of the men at the beginnings. How did you get hooked up with Ken? As you said, this is three pictures. Uh, how I came to Ken's attention... You know, someone is going to have to ask Ken this because I think it's through my work on Wallander. But I've been asked this a couple of times and I keep thinking, I think this is one for Ken to answer. But I I do believe it must be through my work on Wallander. He was the producer and the actor. And I did series two and I did the finale of series four, I think it is, where I assembled episode two and three, which is the finale. And Ken's performance as Wallander with Alzheimer's 
was exquisite. And I believe that's how I came to his attention, but I'm, I'm not too sure. We'll have to find him out. We do need to find out that answer. But, but that's very interesting. That almost reminds me of the idea of Joe Walker being called out by Lupita Nyong'o. If you're aware, you must be able to see your performance shaped by the editor. Yeah, that's actually a good point. That, that is very possible. What's your approach in dailies? What do you do? How did your assistant set up your bin? And when you come in in the morning and you don't have anything in your timeline, what do you do? I am very old school and I would have, particularly for a film like this, I watch absolutely everything. So I just asked the assistant to have it on frame view. I, I used to be text view, but I've now moved. I've grown and moved for frame view because some films you just have to be more frame view and text view gets too laborious. So I begin just watching Steve and I begin to pick out things that actually really resonate with me. But I, I just watch everything and begin to create a palette. And I think by doing that, it, it sort of immerses you in the footage. So then when you actually come to edit, I can remember, well, take three and take 14 maybe are really interesting. And I can sort of put them into my timeline and build around them. I always work with sound early days because I think sound can just enrich a film to such a degree that if you didn't do the sound work, you might end up cutting something that actually could be held. So I watch everything. I keep anything that I think is really interesting. Any shots of Ma or Jude before action or after take, I'm sure all editors say the same thing. You just mine that, that material to find anything that's going to have a truthfulness or authenticity. And then I begin to build it. And once we build, particularly on a film like this, which is memory based with those beautiful tableau styles, then it was the art of sound design and using how we're going to use music, particularly in a sparse way, to just keep the movements through the film so that we didn't become too indulgent or we you know, no scene that state, it's welcome. When you say you're, you watch everything and you're pulling things, are you literally cutting something out of a daily that you're watching and sticking it in the timeline or are you putting a marker or what are you doing? Yeah, no, I, I actually don't bother with markers unless unless there's a few different things that I think oh, that's quite good. But say, for example, it, with Jude, there could be rolling takes. So there could be many performances on one take. So it could be a very, very long take. Well, I do ask the assistant to put little markers on every new performance on a rolling take. And whatever I like, I would actually cut onto a timeline and it'd be all my favorite bits. And then I'd go through all the rushes and do my unit selects for those different bins. Then I would go back. I wouldn't start editing yet. I would do all the selections. I could file them away from the two cut folder. Then when that is done, then I go back and I watch my unit selects and then I begin to build it. And then if time was precious where I didn't have time to do sound design, I would then send that to my assistant and either the first or second assistant would I'd give them direction on can you build up the sound design we need some ship horns we need a wind we need you know different elements and then they would do that send it back to me while I'm now editing scene 104 and so there's a sort of a dialogue and then they'd send it back to me I could watch it and tweak it in case any sound was perhaps not totally corrective or if it was good but it needed a little bit of volume modulation or if it's great I'd just say thank you so much to the assistant and then give them another scene so it's a real <laughs> Labour fluff. So by the end of that day, I'll have three crafted scenes which feel rich, not only editorially, but also in sound. I, I'm really interested in the fact that you pull all your selects for a day. I pull my selects and cut my scene, but I could definitely see a value. What do you think the value is in not starting to cut immediately? When I pull all the scenes first, it just allows me a little bit of thinking time to sort of digest the overall impact of the characters or what's going to happen. 
And then it gives me a little break as well from what I've just watched. So when I watch it again, say four hours later, I'm sort of watching again with fresh eyes and I can reinterrogate that material. I think I'm good at being fearless in diving back into the brushes if needs be. I don't get wedded to, just because I cut the scene like this day one, that you know, two weeks later, that I'd, I'm not brave enough to go back in and say, well, hang on, maybe there was something else. And particularly with films like Belfast, you know, you won't see it, but there are scenes where we've removed dialogue. So we've found really clever ways to get around the dialogue edit without drawing attention to itself. And that's thanks to knowing my rushes. It's a very important feat of memory as well, because it helps you just live the film. You keep saying uh, that you, li- you know, you look at Una's selects and like, who else's selects would they be? <laughs> it is terrible. And, and even I'm sure my assistants are like, well, how does she do with all her unislecs? Sometimes I have to hide my unislecs bin because they can look too mad. There are elements that I can find that I think have a lyricism or a poetic realism value for me. And where I think myself and Ken are well matched is some of the things that I've found. I think he likes them too. And then things he's found, I like them too. And then there are other times, by the way, obviously we're not always completely on the same page. What I really enjoy about working with any director, and Ken definitely has it as well, is, you know, being challenged by the director. And I could cut something and think it's magnificent, and Ken might just challenge me and say, well, hang on, what about doing X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, oh, God, you're going to destroy that masterpiece that we've created. And he'd be fearless <laughs> going to take it out. Let's see what it works like without. So that's good as well. So I think it's, it's a good conversation. Una, I could listen to you all day, but I know you have other things to do and more promotion to do. Yeah, I can't thank you enough, Steve, for chatting to me because I'm such an admirer of your work and your writing. So thank you so much. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, these interviews are also available to read at blog.frame.io, where they're supported with great visual content images, video clips, and more. It's a great opportunity to check out the other expert content on the blog for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks again to my guest, Una Niganila, ACE, BFE. Thanks to Dylan Giovanetto for editing today's podcast using Adobe Audition. And thanks to Frame.io for their support of Art of the Cut and its pledge to keep this content coming your way. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. And so you don't miss out on all the great upcoming interviews on the Art of the Cut podcast, subscribe to this podcast. And remember, if you have a friend in the film business or who aspires to be in the film business, make sure to tell them about the Art of the Cut podcast and blog.frame.io. Thank you.